Hello, and thank you for joining us for what I hope will be an interesting and informative discussion around some of the latest data in rheumatology. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And today we have the pleasure to welcome back Professor Roy Fleischman, who's a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Welcome, Roy, and we do appreciate so much you giving up your time. Last time we spoke a little bit about oral surveillance and the data with uh, tofacitinib. And today we're going to focus on another Jack Ubitacitinib and discuss your recently published paper, which looked at the long-term safety of Ubitacitinib versus adalimumab in the Select Compared study in rheumatoid arthritis um, that's recently been published. Um, so Roy, can you tell us a little bit about, just before we dive in, has the jack space changed since oral surveillance? Has uh, UPA been used more than ever and TOFA less than before? Uh, what's been going on in the US? Yeah, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question, Peter. Uh, in my mind, the safety signals that we saw with tofacitinib, as small as they were, uh, are probably jack specific and not just TOFA specific. But I'm not sure that most rheumatologists realize that. So my guess is that there is probably more upadacinib being used than tofacitinib. Okay, so, um, and in our country, they're quite a significant portion of the market. In the US, are the jacks very popular or are they being pushed TNFIR? Well, according to the change in the product label as of December, uh, you shouldn't start a jack until a patient has failed the TNF. Right. Even in the monotherapy space, even where there's some issue with TNFs, is there a, is there a caveat? No, there is no caveat. That's one of the problems with how the FDA changed the label. What do you do with monotherapy where a TNF monotherapy, as you know, is really not as effective as the TNF in combination with methotrexate? And that really is a space uh, for, the, for the JAKs or, or for IL-6 inhibitors. And not that it's very relevant, but have you heard of any litigation yet in the lit litiginous US where patient on Zelgens for many years gets a malignancy or a infarct, they turn around and sue the rumor. That None of that's been going on yet? Uh, I haven't heard of any of that going on yet. I think it's a little early for that. You know, the, the, <laughs> the lawyers uh, usually wait a little bit and then they collect cases and cases and cases and they take class action. And that's usually, you know, after a while. Um, I guess it's after a year or two, but who knows with lawyers. <laughs> That's true. And do you think there's any wriggle room to change the FDA decision, which is the whole Jack class and every indication? Do you think that'll soften over time or relax over time? The FDA is not known for its flexibility. Okay, so that's the answer to that question. Now let's talk about the study. What do you make and how should the clinical rumo think of these three-year, four-year, five-year safety studies? Where do you think they sit in what we should weigh up as evidence when we're treating um, our patients? Well, when you're taking a look at three, four, five-year studies, usually looking for safety signals. 
because patients who are in the trials, generally in, in the phase three trial, in the double blind trial, those who've had an adverse event to those who have not had efficacy usually leave the trials before the long-term extension occurs. This study is a little bit different because uh, patients who didn't respond to one of the two drugs uh, was switched to the other. And there were patients on both sides who had efficacy where they didn't have efficacy with the original drug. So it, it is a little unusual in terms of clinical trial design, um, but we can look at efficacy over time because of that reason. As okay, well as excellent. Excellent, excellent. So we should always check the retention rate over time and just see how many dropouts have occurred. Um, and can you tell us a bit about how this study was done? You could argue that having a TNF arm is a little oral surveillance-like out to three years, and that maybe if there are enough numbers, we could actually do a separate little study of the people over 50 with a cardiovascular risk factor and compare the jack with the TNF. You had a lot of maybes and possibly, and <laughs> we'll see. So the difference is, Yes, this is a study that did look at uh, upadacinib plus methotrexate versus adalimumab plus methotrexate over time. And, and this is a 10-year study, as you know. We just reported the three-year at this point. So you could take a look at the safety signals, but as you pointed out, there are too few patients in this study to really see these signals. If you remember in oral surveillance, the point that I made was the incident rate of MACE and malignancy and VTE was extremely low. Uh, you need lots of patients for a long period of time to get events. And this trial, which has you know 300 patients in a norm, is very different than, than the studies that had you know 5,000 patients going on, going on for five, six, seven years. So we didn't see any of those events, actually. Uh, there, there was no difference between uh, um, adalimumab and upadacinib in this study. But again, this study was not the high-risk population. These are just patients on stable background methotrexate who randomized either yeah. upadacinib, 15 milligrams, uh, plus the methotrexate, or adalimumab in the double-blind portion. There was also placebo. And if they didn't have an insufficient response by week 26, which we defined as uh, in the beginning of the study, not having a 20% decrease in tender swollen joints, but a week 26 by not having CDI low disease activity, then they were switched. So, and, and, that, and then they continue that way for, for, for 10 years, for a total of 10 years. Um, and so there aren't that many patients and the, the patients were not selected based on cardiovascular risk. So this is a general RA population. And as you know very well, when you take a look at the general RA population and whether you take a look at uh, uh, registries or uh, whether you take a look at um, uh, insurance claim data, uh, these signals don't occur. It only occurred in this very, very special population and in a very special group in this population. Um, and that was not the population that was studied in this study. We did look in, in this study, and there were, there were a few patients who actually would have uh, qualified for oral surveillance, but we didn't see events. Excellent. So, so 
the findings then? What we, we understand the select compare trial, um, very important, um, really powered for head to head at some of their measures. Um, what were your safety signals that popped up? Anything um, that we should be aware of, such as the CPK uh, issue? Yeah, so, uh, so, so let me go through that. So the safety profile uh, was generally similar to adalimumab for adverse events of special interest. So that includes malignancies, uh, major adverse cardiovascular events, or MACE, uh, VTEs, and deaths. But upanacinib, being a jack, continued to show consistently better clinical response compared to adalimumab, who's, as we showed in the beginning of the trial, um, including uh, rates of remission, low disease activity. Uh, but there were safety events that did occur, uh, and they were um, uh, higher levels of CPK, um, herpes zoster, uh, lymphopenia, uh, LFT elevation. Uh, th those were the adverse events that we associate with JAKS, um, and uh, th they showed in this trial as well. Uh, any thoughts on mechanism for the CPK elevation? And generally, we don't even measure it, even though we know it can go up. Um, we've come across occasional case reports of myalgia, no rhabdomyolysis. Why does CK go up, Roy? Yeah, so you just made the, imp the important point. Don't measure it because you don't want to see the result if it's high, right? <laughs> So there are no reports that I'm aware of of patients developing frank myositis uh, with a jack. Uh, one of the reasons that I've seen postulated, which makes sense, uh, is that rheumatoid arthritis patients um, uh, have intense inflammatory burden and they don't get around very well and they have muscle atrophy. And when they are treated with an agent that really helps the inflammation, uh, then the muscles begin to regenerate. And, that's the, and that can produce an elevated CPK. So that makes a lot of sense to me. The problem is that it would be the same with the TNF, right? A, a patient with active rheumatoid arthritis treated with adalimumab, uh, you know, many of those patients do well and you don't see an elevated CPK. So I'm not really sure that that is the reason. That's what's been postulated, um, but in my mind, it's, it's a little illogical. Okay, so the zoster thing we expect with all jacks, and I suppose we just have to be uh, um, cognizant of vaccination, and you've got Shingrix over there. We've just got it here, but it's not reimbursed by our government. Um, but what do you do with vaccination with your patients, Roy? Do you try and get them vaccinated even at the methotrexate level? Yes. Um, so, you know, herpes zoster occurs in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, uh, higher yeah. than the general population. Um, and it does occur even when patients are on any, any background medication, whether it be any conventional synthetic or a TNF. Uh, it, it occurs a little bit more frequently with the JAK, as you note. So, so my thought is that any patient with rheumatoid arthritis that I'm going to treat uh, should be treated with uh, Shingrix. Okay. Um, tell us about the lymphocytes. Um, early TOFA studies, it wasn't just lymphocytes that went down, it was NK cells. There was some right. question of whether that was associated with opportunist infection. 
Any thoughts on the lymphocyte changes, Roy? So there are lymphocyte changes, but, uh, but I'm not exactly sure about this, but I have a feeling that the lymphocyte changes are not NK cells uh, with eupatacin, but I think that's one of the differences uh, of being a, a more selective JAK1. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I think that that's true. Okay. And the, and the liver test abnormalities, do you think it's because of background methotrexate as much as the IL-6 inhibition? Well, we combo? know, yeah. So, so we know, so I've done a number of studies with, with JAKS, as you know, uh, including monotherapy. Um, and uh, with monotherapy, the liver elevation, liver test elevation, uh, really isn't as uh, frequent uh, or as high as it is in combination. So I think that there is some effect on the liver on the jacks, uh, but it, but most of it I think is actually the the background medication, whether you methotrexate or flunamide. And again, um, the incidence of VTE mace. Uh, was very small. There's a very small numerical difference in non-melanoma skin cancer. We're very cognizant of that over here. So we, we do skin checks every year. Do you think there's any general advice about the skin for rheumatoid patients on all these drugs, really? Well, actually, I think that you do it better than we do, than we do it, because you're, you're exactly right. So there is a small increase in non-melanoma skin cancer, uh, and patients should be examined every year. Um, and I'd like to say that I do that with uh, uh, all my patients, referring to a dermatologist for a full evaluation. But if I say that, I'd be lying because I don't think about it all the time. Right. Um, but, but I should because, you know, we have the same climate you do. Uh, we have a lot of sun, uh, you know, um, from late March, April uh, through October. Uh, so it really is something that we should do. So we've, we've had a good look at safety. What about the efficacy and what about the switch data? So on the switch data, the patients who didn't respond to adalimumab, uh, many of them did respond to eupatacin and vice versa. Uh, what's interesting is in Select Compare, which you know the initial study, uh, there were, the responses were uh, we're statistically significantly better with eupatacinib versus adalimumab. Um, and these responses actually were consistent as time went on. So patients still did well with adalimumab, but they didn't do quite as well, or, or in a group of patients, they didn't do quite as well as the patients in eupatacinib. Uh, there were more patients who achieved low disease activity and remission on eupatacinib uh, versus adalimumab, although many patients did. And it was nice to be able to switch without a washout and have no safety signal for doing that. So that's helpful for the clinician. You had some right. um, x-ray progression data as well. Any Anything new on the imaging side? No, uh, there's nothing new. So, so we know that eupatacinib inhibits radiographic progression. We know that uh, adalimumab radi uh, inhibits radiographic progression, and, and that's been fairly consistent through the trial. So we're going to continue to see this um, stretched out over a number of years. Any take-home messages for the clinician as far as uh, adalimumab on background methotrexate compared to upadacitinib on background methotrexate? 
Yeah, so the statement they would make is, you know, we have 20 years of experience with TNF inhibitors uh, with the adalimumab actually. We, we have 20 years. It was approved in 20, uh, 2002, uh, a little bit more with Intenercept. So the TNF inhibitors are really quite good, um, particularly in combination with methotrexate. The JAK inhibitors uh, are actually a little bit better. So when we've done trials comparing it to TNF, to methotrexate, so TNF monotherapy to uh, methotrexate monotherapy, the TNFs are no better than methotrexate. But when we do that with the JAKs, and we've done that with each of the JAKs, the JAKs are superior to methotrexate. So that tells you a little bit. Um, and the studies that have been done comparing uh, the JAKs to the TNF on background methotrexate, uh, the study with hepatocinib, the select compare that we're talking about now, did show a statistical uh, difference head-to-head -head, um, with superiority for hepatocinib. Uh, baricinib, again, showed superiority head-to-head. -head. And with tofacinib, it was non-inferior. So my thought about this is, is if, if you could start a JAK, if you have a patient, who is uh, an incomplete responder to methotrexate uh, or no response to methotrexate. And you can start a TNF or a JAK. Uh, my thought is that I would, I would prefer to start the JAK. And the reason for that, the number needed to treat is about 10 to 12. So you have to you know, treat 10, 12 more patients to get one more, one, one more uh, result. Uh, with um, the um, uh, jack, uh, but the safety signal, the number needed to harm uh, is in the hundreds. So the <coughs> relative uh, risk-benefit ratio does favor the jack. Uh, so if I had rheumatoid arthritis and if it were allowed, um, you know, I would start a jack uh, before a TNF. But in the United States, that's not the rule. The rule is uh, we have to start a TNF prior to a jack. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time and trouble, Roy. We've enjoyed talking with you as always. Uh, if you want to hear more about this uh, and you can get detailed slide sets and you can get uh, um, a summary of our discussions, um, you can upload, all of these are uploaded to CSF website this month. You can get the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever else you uh, get your podcasts. Give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. We greatly appreciate it. And we greatly appreciate your time, Roy. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Peter. Look Stay forward safe. To seeing you. Look forward to seeing you in Copenhagen. Yeah, it'll be the first time in, what, two years? <laughs> That's right. <laughs>